0: Hey gang, this week's episode is brought to you by 417 Helmets. It's collectible helmets and more. Mini football helmets from just about every dead and forgotten football league you've ever heard of. Also, mini baseball helmets from the Negro Leagues, as well as custom helmets. You want your business or your organization represented in a cool mini helmet format? Hey, check them out. 417helmets.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now, here's our show
1: tennis and the public really came out the winner today. This is a story of becoming, a story on the emergence of what we know today as professional tennis. Every sport produces its stars and its moment. And for tennis, those stars and that moment were aligned here in Dallas on the campus of Southern Methodist University. The old arena is much different now since that day in May of 1972. But Moody was never famous for how it looked. Moody built its reputation on the strength of one spring afternoon and one tennis match. An overflow crowd of 8,500 unheard of for professional tennis at the time. A TV audience of 21 million people a winner's check for $50,000 and two superstars in a match for the ages. That is probably the greatest tennis match I've ever seen in my life. All these ingredients combine to trigger what today is professional tennis. A game far removed from its roots of pomp and privilege to one encompassing a worldwide audience. A tour played on every continent, players competing for tens of millions of dollars. And in large part, what happened that day in Dallas gave notice. Tennis had arrived.
0: Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast Devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Your pal Tim Hanlon here, and it's good seats still available. Welcome to the proceedings. As you know, it is the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. It's what we do for you here each and every week, uh, despite all the obstacles against it. And um, I am honored uh, to be in your presence uh, this week. Thanks for finding us. Uh, as you can determine from the uh, the little setup there, we're going to be talking about tennis. And uh, it's a topic that we rarely kind of get into, but uh, we've had the great excuse to do so this week with our guest, Joel Drucker, who uh, is uh, a connoisseur of the game and a writer and a follower of the game for many, many years. Uh, You may have read his works at places like Tennis.com and and Racket Magazine. Uh, You may have read his book, Jimmy Connors Saved My Life from 2004, the well-reviewed and well-regarded, mostly biography of Jimmy Connors, uh, etc. And um, I'm going to tell you the story of how this all set up. But first of all, let's talk about that clip. Uh, That clip uh, is uh, from the official uh, documentary about the founding of One of the topics that uh, is uh, crucial for our conversation this week, World Championship Tennis, uh, which itself got formed in 1972, uh, and uh, a familiar figure to listeners of this show uh, was instrumental in the founding of that. His name, Lamar Hunt, Uh, the late, great Lamar Hunt, uh, obviously well known for his American Football League and a little bit lesser so national national North American soccer league exploits. But Lamar Hunt was also uh, involved uh, in founding and funding uh, the admitted, uh, I think, uh, uh, real sort of professionalized modern day tour system uh, that we know today as the World uh, Tennis Association uh, and and all those – you know, tournaments and those kinds of things, and the, the, the game and the money that we know today. But World Championship Tennis back in 72 uh, was a relatively novel concept uh, where prior to that, um, mid, the mid, ni- mid to late 1960s, you had a, a professional tennis circuit that was comprised really of a handful of major events and uh, a structure that was largely... I guess you could call it barnstorming in nature. Uh, not a whole lot of rigor uh, and uh, alignment uh, and statistical sort of a uniformity uh, to all that stuff. And World Championship Tennis, uh, amongst a couple of other tributaries, was a breakthrough at the time. Uh, national television, uh, big crowds, and uh, some some gigantic prize money. And a, a sort of a, 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 I guess, sort of a rhyme and a reason for pros to kind of sign up and be part of the mix with, you know, regular schedules and, uh, and standings and all that kind of stuff, and even a championship at the end of a of a, an actual season. This is a really novel idea in the early '70s, um, and that is sort of a, a an essential sort of a, a component of, of of the our story uh, this week as we get into kind of the 1970s, really the decade. Uh, and tennis. And there's obviously the germ of this idea, uh, this conversation sort of was generated from our excellent conversation a few weeks back with the great Michael McCambridge, uh, talking about his new book uh, about the 70s and sports and, and all that stuff. The uh, the Big Time is the name of that. And if you haven't heard that show, please, by all means, go back and listen to that. And by the way, also get a copy of that book because my goodness, uh, it really encapsulates and I think almost is a, an essential kind of a feeling that we have on this show. Um, but uh, Joel reached out to me just out of the blue uh, a couple of weeks after that show and said, hey, you know, if you ever want to go deeper into the tennis thing, and and you may remember that we led that episode uh, with a clip from another thing we'll be talking about in more in depth, the battle of the sexes, uh, not the only one, but the big one that most people remember um, uh, back in the early 70s between Billie Jean King uh, and Bobby Riggs—that's also another seminal event uh, in this sort of a timeline of 1970s-ish tennis, the growing up of tennis, the professionalizing, uh, the modernizing of professional tennis. The Virginia Slims tournament—the uh, uh, you could make the argument, sort of the uh, uh, the women's equivalent, uh, figuratively and uh, and directly—to uh, uh, making professional women's tennis. Uh, a standardized tour thing, and Billie Jean King being part of that for sure. And of course, no uh, exploration of uh, the maturation of professional tennis in the 70s would be complete without uh, a thorough discussion uh, of a topic we've kind of uh, grazed around uh, and nibbled at a bit over time, but uh, certainly would love to go deeper and more thoroughly as uh, we go forward in our little lives here. And that's, of course, World Team Tennis, the original version of World Team Tennis, 1974 uh, until 1978, uh, I believe, were the the times uh, for that. Well, it was founded in 74. The seasons uh, that it lasted were from uh, 19, uh, let's see, teams played from 74 to 78. There you go. Uh, but the um, the founding uh, was uh, just a tad bit earlier in the latter part of 1973, where uh, the uh, Battle of the Sexes occurred. And uh, all of that stuff is part of the intricate web and the um, uh, excitement and um, uh, amazing story of professional tennis. And uh, it's modernization, shall we say, in the 1970s. That's the topic uh, this week as we get into our conversation coming up in a couple of seconds with Joel Drucker. And uh, let me also remind you again of uh, what you can do on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com with relation to Joel's appearance here. Uh, this is episode number, what is it, seven, seven. <laughs> 325, well, not 700 yet, uh, but uh, give us time episode 325 if you just go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com and search up this episode numbered 325 with Joel uh you will see uh, a convenient link or two to various things of his like i said before you can go to tennis.com uh, and that is the um uh the offshoot of the tennis channel uh, that you may be familiar with watching and you occasionally will see Joel's uh, contributions there on air. But if you want to read his writings on a regular basis, tennis.com is the place to go. Racket Magazine, uh, the w- the website is racketmag, R-A-C-Q-U-E-T mag, racketmag.com. Lots of writings there, especially uh, around 1970s and other historical things in tennis. And the link, of course, you will find there as well on that, uh, that listing there on our website is uh, to the book, Uh, That is a fun read and very intriguing. It's called Jimmy Connors Saved My Life. It's basically a biography of Jimmy Connors. And he, too, is a key figure in this 1970s meets tennis story. So uh, there you go. You'll find uh, all those links there. And again, our uh, website is goodseatsstillavailable.com. Lots of fun stuff for you there in addition to those links uh, for sure. All right, let's get to our conversation now. Uh, sit back, enjoy. I learned a lot from all of this. And uh, it's just literally has uh, just uh, is intriguing to me. I really want to go in further uh, in depth with uh, with all these topics. I think you will want to too. Here's our conversation that we had with uh, Joel Drucker coming up. uh, We had it just a couple of uh, about a week ago. Uh, Please, as always, enjoy. All right, so let's start from kind of the beginning. Give our audience a bit of background about who you are and what makes you uh, so well-versed in this sport of tennis and for the conversation at hand. You see the
2: movie Almost Famous, Tim? Do You ever see that movie, Almost Famous?
0: Multiple times.
2: Well, think of me, I'm like Cameron Crowe with a garage band. So I'm kind of in the tennis. I grew up in Southern California, began playing tennis around 1971, 72 in Los Angeles. And this was the time when the tennis boom was happening. It was uh, in full glory. And so I got caught up into watching tennis. So I became eventually, I started writing about tennis in 1982. I started writing about it more extensively in 1993. And so I've been involved in the game in various shapes and forms for 50 years as a child as a player not that I was a particularly accomplished junior but also as a someone who loved the game someone who loved reading about it talking about it meeting people in it growing up in southern california is kind of like being in country music and growing up around nashville so i was in it at a very you know big level lots of people the the tennis camp i went to every summer was run by tony trabert who was the cbs analyst and soon became the davis cup captain he'd been number 1 in the world i'm um, um people like Jimmy Connors is practicing at the courts where my friends and I are playing. So I'm around the game in a lot of ways from a young age. And I just fell in love with it and continues to this day.
0: And we've seen you in various uh, written publications and on the air at places too, right? You want to mention some of those places? Yeah,
2: sure. I've written for everyone from Tennis Channel, which also is Tennis.com and Tennis Channel are part of the same Organization, a magazine called Racket that I write for, um, uh, USTA publications, The New York Times, tons of other publications like Cigar Aficionado and Men's Journal, kind of finding ways to bring tennis angles to those publications, HBO, CBS. I stumbled into the world of uh, television and television production in the late 90s. So that kind of took my career in another direction. So all of that.
0: Well, that's uh, I think uh, pretty well suited for for some of the the grilling that is uh, yet to commence. So, let's uh, maybe uh, turn the the wheels back a little bit. So, um, it, the the mid to late nineteen sixties, right, is almost sort of a um, an interesting sort of point in time for the history of professional tennis. We're going to keep it in that, and maybe you could explain a little bit about sort of what uh, a touring kind of professional kind of situation look like, especially and maybe only at that point for men, uh, beyond the the majors and all that kind of stuff. Because uh in 1968, World Championship tennis came about. And I want to get into that story, but before then, what was really going on or not going on? 1968, with
2: 1968 is the BCAD year in the history of tennis. Prior to 1968, the sport was split in two. A great many players played all the events we know, such as Wimbledon, the U.S. National Championships, this was called, um, the French, all the Davis Cup, all these events we know. However, they were amateurs, and they weren't allowed to take prize money, even though they were often given compensation under the table. If you wanted to make a legitimate living as a professional tennis player, like Rod Laver and Pancho Gonzalez and Ken Rosewall and Tony Traver and others, you turned pro, but you were then banned from those events. So you made money, but you were a barnstormer. So the sport was kind of split in two. And a number of things happened, um, unless I could tell you how they happened, but a number of things happened that by the spring of 1968, the sport decided to become open. And therefore, the pros could play Wimbledon, and there was going to be money in tennis. And that kind of at last put tennis together so it could become a, a thorough, professionalized sport. And then subsequent 10, 15 years were what I call the land grab era of entrepreneurialism and people trying to figure out what's this all gonna look like. And that's, and and the tennis boom happens too because the game starts to become more palatable to TV. And in America though, I'm gonna point this out. There's not just the top down effect of great players now being professional and tennis commercialized and starting to be on TV more, but also the bottom up, the mid late sixties is a time in America where people start to think about participating more than just watching do your own thing, Uh, physical fitness, ecology, kind of the empowerment of the individual, politics is personal. So the fitness boom starts in the late 60s, early 70s. And the first two children of that are jogging and tennis because tennis appears, oh, that's kind of a cool sport. I'll try that. And so it booms from the bottom up as well.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So maybe describe a little bit about what the pre-open kind of... uh... I don't know. What was it even professional I, at that point? Like what, no, there are
2: two. Yeah. There are two aspects. There, there, there are two worlds. There was what I call the feudalistic world of great castles, such as the Westside Tennis Club at Forest Hills, the Los Angeles Tennis Club in Los Angeles, Longwood Cricket Club. These were citadels. These were the old school clubs that hosted events, but the players kind of served at the mercy of the patrons, the amateurs, and the you know, fees were negotiated for these expenses and under the table so a tennis player then was often called like a tennis bum you kind of traveled but how much were you, were you really making money what was going on and then the pro world was this barnstorming tour playing in arenas and gymnasiums and high schools and they they play on cow dung in india they play a court laid out over a hockey rink in schenectady and that was kind of a barnstorming world and they would uh, they would sometimes play uh 20 events in 20 cities in 20 nights. Just constantly going from one city to another. And so, but the sport was that was pre 68. After 68, it becomes aligned and there start to emerge pro tennis tours, such as, like you mentioned, the uh, eventual uh, world championship tennis.
0: It almost sounds like barnstorming.
2: Yes, that's exactly what it is. In fact, I worked on a documentary called Barnstormers about the pre 68 pros. That's exactly what they were. That's right, barnstormers. Yep. So
0: so give me a sense then of, of, of uh, people were recognizing this, right? There was clearly stuff that's uh, not sort of great. It's very uneven. Uh, I'm sure the, the players themselves were finding this to be a difficult proposition for the game that they loved and, and arguably trying to make a living at doing this. But there were, I think there were actually two, if I'm not mistaken, kind of circuits that were kind of being devised or thought about. Uh, to kind of solve for this problem, is that correct?
2: Wait, no, no. Well, no. The, once, once the game went open, there were circuits. Yeah, I, I'm. We're not going to go to political science to explain how open tennis came about. Once open tennis came about in the spring of '68, um, there there were some pro circuits that had started, and then they became more fully blown in '68. You're talking about the men's game. The there was a thing called the National Tennis League, yep. that started that was both men and women by the way well, that i didn't first...
0: realize that i just thought it was a male only okay
2: oh that was that was six men and four women of which Billie jean king was one and then the there's a thing called the handsome eight which were eight men who had started a circuit of sorts in early 68 and that eventually morphed into world championship tennis as run and owned by lamar hunt who i'm sure you've talked about before the kansas city chiefs the afl soccer, all these things. So Lamar Hunt put the money into World Championship Tennis. And then eventually, World Championship Tennis kind of bought out the National Tennis League, and that became part of one of the men's circuits. There are others as well. It's just, it's a whole hootenanny in that period, 68, 69, 70, 71, lots of stuff going on.
0: Got it. Okay. So the National Tennis League uh, was not a... a uh, a team or city-based kind of proposition. This was essentially a tour, correct? It was a tour called the National Tennis
2: League, though I learned recently that to, at one level, because it was a co-ed tour, not that they were playing versus one another, that a woman's portion and a men's portion, um, part of that may have inspired Billie Jean King. It was only one of many things that inspired Billie Jean King and her husband, Larry King, to come up, hey, we had l- league. Hmm, maybe there should be a league for tennis truly a team league and that's that becomes not just the national tennis league but other things compel Billy Jean and Larry to think of what became world team tennis which eventually starts in the in the spring of 74
0: all right well tell me a little bit more about world championship tennis the wct essentially was kind of the thing that kind of congealed out, out of all of that stuff largely um yes. you mentioned a, you mentioned a couple of names the hunt I know there's a guy named Al Hill was part of this, but also Amateur. a guy also, we also talked about before too, also in the realm of football a guy named David Dixon.
2: Well, David Dixon was the entrepreneur from new Orleans who started the handsome eight in 1967. He signed um, eight players, several of whom were amateurs, several of whom were pro already barnstorming pros and created this kind of ensemble called the handsome eight that he formed by the end of 67. It, kicks off with competition in early 68 and they're playing and they're, um, he's a little over his head financially and operationally and he needs help. And I think I forget if he was already in touch with Al Hill Jr. Who's Lamar Hunt's nephew, Al Hill Jr. played a pivotal role in getting Lamar Hunt to back this tennis thing. And eventually that morphs into world championship tennis, which eventually becomes a night three 32 man traveling groups playing all over the world and wct is really the ancestor of the pro the men's pro tennis circuit as we know it lamar hunt and the wct people arranged starting in 71 72 for these things to constantly be on nbc there, there's one match in particular if i may i want to talk about yeah please the, the wct circuit they they made some other arrangements with the tennis powers they were going to they're going to their year was going to culminate In the spring in may 72 it just worked that way i won't again i won't get bogged down into it and the final was this eight-man playoff played in dallas in may and in may 72 the final pitted rod laver and ken Rosewall, who were the arguably the two best players in the world then and they had a glorious match that was on nbc it was going so long it goes into like evening time nbc allocates time for it 21 million people are watching and i think that match is a cat is one of the catalysts of the tennis boom. It goes to a fifth set tiebreaker. It's one of the greatest matches ever. Probably one of the five greatest matches in tennis history. This match. And it's on NBC and and it's colorful and it's great. You and Laver's in blue and rose Hall's and orange and it's just a tremendous tennis on national TV. Well, and that was the kind of the high watermark of WCT.
0: Okay, so television is I want to come back to the television part in a second, but but what what changed about the play, what what did WCT kind of bring to the table? I'm guessing, sort of uniformity or uh, around court conditions. I mean, what, what were they playing all indoor or all outdoor? Some codification of rules, perhaps. What, what, uh, else, what was it all They made about? it kind of professionalized. It's like the players. It
2: was kind of a a million dollar circuit where each tournament have fifty thousand dollars in prize money, and it was an organized circuit, and there was a schedule. And and players were signed to contracts, and they were and the um, the tournaments were professionally run. They also the guy who was running started running WCT in in a big time way in 1971. Mike Davies, who'd been a former barnstormer, um, he got involved with the yellow ball, a more TV friendly ball that you could watch. That was a big thing in the early 70s. Remember, there'd been what white. Was the,
0: what was the color before? White.
2: White. Yeah, the balls were white. In fact, Wimbledon used a white ball until '86. That's right. So it's white. So this and,
0: yellow ball is more TV friendly. And, and what of television, right? Uh, I, I, if I remember huge. a little bit in my mind's eye, I, I seem to remember uh, bits and pieces of, of matches that were, was it largely syndicated television. Is, as as uh, no, by ni- in nineteen seventy,
2: there were about I think the number around that time there were about seven events on TV. You know, little CBS with the US Open, some NBC Wimbledon couple of here and there. Once, once, uh, that WCT was on NBC, they had finals in the first few months of every year from like 72 to 77 or so they were on NBC just about every Sunday with a final. So that was huge. And then, and then by the, by 74, if not earlier, it's on four networks. You've got multiple events on CBS, NBC, yeah, the woman got a contract with cbs seventy four seventy five. the um uh the slams are starting to get more coverage uh abc is doing some tennis uh pbs pbs a lot of tennis aired on pbs in the 70s monday night finals from all around the u.s so the game is just proliferating on network tv by the by the mid-70s there's something like 70 events on tv
0: interesting okay so this seems like it is, at least for the men, uh, adding uh, a significant and regular and arguably maybe even more event-oriented kind of feel uh, to stuff in between the four majors uh, in terms of a, a season uh, of competition.
2: Let me help everyone see it a little differently. Let's just say the 2.5 majors. The, the There was a tournament. I will show you a tournament in Philadelphia that was played in January. That meant more than the Australian Open for several years. The French kind of teetered and tottered some until about 1979. A lot of players, the the French wasn't always, or Roland Garros, as it is now called, wasn't quite taking care of the players, and there wasn't enough money, and and a lot of players were playing world team tennis, so they were skipping the French. Um, So really, it was Wimbledon, the Open. Wimbledon, for a couple of years, had some significant political issues. In '72, they banned the WCT players from playing Wimbledon. So 32 WCT players did not play Wimbledon in 72. 73, there was the ATP boycott that was kind of a uh, the most important player struggle in the history of tennis. That um, about approximately 80 men did not play Wimbledon that year. So the slant it was really about building up the tours more. So it was not like the four majors were not what they are now, where they exist now as clear, vivid tent poles of the game. That was not the case. In the 70s
0: okay so this i know there's a lot more sort of idiosyncrasies to all this but but the one thing i can't that that i do believe is also part of this is this uh this this circuit called the grand prix circuit which is ostensibly a rival is that true oh oh my god oh god you know this is this is explaining to you
2: why when i was a teenager i wanted to go to college and study political science yes (laughs) okay emerged another a circuit called the Commercial Union Grand Prix in the early 70s. Uh, Jack Kramer, who had been a, led the Barnstormers, he was always so crazy about Lamar Hunt and, and, the, and Lamar Hunt's effort to kind of, in his mind, dominate tennis. Jack Kramer had idea of a Grand Prix that would go January to November, December, the year-round circuit. And so that's why sometime around... 1971, 72, a deal was created where WCT could have its circuit just the first few months of the year. So that started to change. So yes, there was a commercial Union Grand Prix and that counted for points too. So it was a little, lots of lots of circuits.
0: Yeah. Okay. So l- let me to clarify for the, for the layman here. So That's this is, still, this is still all in the, uh, in the context of sort of uh, the majors as well, right? So now well, the majors are part of the grand. the majors are part of the grand prix. They were not part of the WCT. Got That's it. Right. Okay, and, but players. The, could not... the Australian.
2: The Australian was a, a very shallow field in those years. Extremely shallow. Fair I mean, enough. Jimmy Thomas played it twice. Bjorn Borg played it once.
0: But a player could not. I mean, so uh, was there must have been a challenge for players could not play both in WCT and in the, the, the Grand Prix circuit, could they? Well, by, by the 71 seventy
2: one seventy two, it resolved that WCT would only exist in the first till about May. So what you would do if you were, let's say, Marty Reeson, who is a, a fine WCT player, you would play WCT the first few months of the year, and then you would be kind of a free agent. You could play the Grand Prix. But you didn't sign a contract with the Grand Prix. The way WCT had previously, they stopped this sometime around 72 they had contracts with players, and they and they compensated them, but they did it kind of a, a draw against their prize money. So WCT in 1971 would sign a player. We're going to pay you 40000 thou. If you make only thirty four thou, we'll still get you'll, you'll still get that extra six. Anything more is yours, and then we'll reevaluate. And and Jack Kramer didn't always like those contracts because he, he wanted other ways of compensation. There was so many power struggles going on there. Oh my God,
0: just. I want to come back to Jack Kramer in a minute, but but I'm going to clear up on the WCT thing. They were also – had so what was the format of WCT? Because they also had – there's also a finals kind of thing too, right? That was the
2: event in Dallas I mentioned. The Dallas event was the finals playoff. That was the type eight, the men who had generated the eight most – the WCT, they were tournaments. They were 32-man tournaments, and people won them, and they accumulated WCT points. And the people who finished in the top eight on the WCT circuit – Qualified for the um season ending playoff in Dallas that culminated, for example, in that great Labor Rosewall match.
0: And would it be fair to say that the, the emergence of WCT and, and various ephemera around it uh not only generated uh more professional interest in the sport, but but arguably became more of a television draw and and an event-driven kind of thing versus just absolutely. occasional majors?
2: Well, absolutely. It made it it was like a thorough, a vivid professional circuit with kind of a, a start ranking points, a race, you know, the sense of like, Oh, we're really watching um, we're, we're watching uh, tennis here and we can follow things. And we got this playoff in Dallas and it's on NBC every weekend. And yeah, absolutely. And it's run professionally. I mean, players before in that pre-open era, if you played a tournament, you, you get booted off a practice group by a club member or you wouldn't get practice balls. You know you're you're kind of at the mercy of the club, and they kind of treated you like you were like some traveling tennis bum. so WTT thoroughly professionalized men's tennis,
0: yeah. and it was certainly we also had to remember that the television landscape back then, right? We're talking you know three major networks and a bunch of independent stations and the syndication was but for much more robust. There was no cable. um, so getting you know, tell getting tennis uh into those. Uh, three big network slots is pretty big deal because the audience was really only split, uh, only a certain number of ways. So the, right. the, the sheer number of people being exposed to the sport and these tournaments was pretty gigantic by today's comparison.
2: Um, the grand prix, um, the grand prix was, it was airing. It was getting some airtime on PBS. The WCT was on, um, and the, yeah, on PBS, WCT was on NBC, um, some, a couple of other special events were on ABC. Yeah, all the networks were all digging into tennis then. CBS was o- upping its US Open commitment and having some other events. There was an event, this is an event that was kind of, I think it was part of WGT, It's was called the CBS Tennis Classic. What would they do? They would play this event in five days in Texas and they would tape it. They would tape it. And then they would parcel out the matches and air them over CBS, the CBS Tennis Classic. And it aired over a series of months um throughout i think i forget it was winter and spring but so how about that you're watching on tv in april a match that was taped in january as part of the cbs tennis classic
0: so a made for tv kind of manufactured thing yeah um, but
2: it was money and there was yeah for sure yeah
0: and, and not not no tour points or any of that kind of stuff
2: no i don't think it factored into the wct mix but it was a heavily wct flavored event
0: all right. So while all this stuff is going on on the men's side, tell me about what's going on on the women's side, because uh, clearly there was uh, opportunity to be had on 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 the other side of the uh, the gender scale as well. And, and arguably long overdue.
2: The woman's side is a little more linear to explain, but here's what happens. So the woman for years there were first of all, before 68, there were scarcely women's pro tennis. There weren't many female barnstormers at all. It didn't. There wasn't perceived to be a market for it, so all the top woman amateurs were the top woman pros. Nonetheless, were the top woman players. Nonetheless, the game becomes open in '68, and people like Billie Jean and Rosie Casals and others they join the National Tennis League, and they hallelujah, pro tennis is here. And Billie Jean and her husband start to see, wait a second, we're being squeezed. The men, they're they're running their tour. They're not making any room for us. They don't really care that much about us, and things. Some very clear things happen in the course of 1970 that really define women's pro tennis. The women get word that the Pacific Southwest Open, played in LA, second most important tournament in America, um, is being run by Jack Kramer. The men are getting maybe, I forget if it's eight times, a significant higher amount of the prize money, like eight times more. And the women are upset about this, and it's August 1970. They learned this in the summer of 70, And they think, what are we going to do? So Billie Jean King and Rosie Gasals and Nancy Ritchie, three winch players, They go to Gladys Heldman. Gladys Heldman is the founder, publisher of World Tennis Magazine and kind of an activist. Think of her. World Tennis. She's like Jan Wenner. World Tennis Magazine is like the Rolling Stone magazine of tennis. Like this is the mag. And Gladys is tapped into the business world. She's very smart. And and they say to Gladys, well, what are we going to do? Gladys first says, well, let me talk to Jack about it. And Jack is kind of intransigent. It's like, nope, that's this is what I'm giving the woman. So G- Gladys decides, all right, I'm gonna, um, I got it, I got the answer. I'm moving to Houston in September. We're gonna ha- we're gonna have a tournament in Houston. I'm gonna get it with the same week as the Southwest. We're gonna boycott the Pacific Southwest. To heck with them. We're gonna have this event. And um, uh, and by the way, Gladys, for years, this is 1970, for a good part of a decade, had cultivated a gentleman named Joe Coleman who is the CEO of Philip Morris, who by that stage was two years into launching a cigarette brand called Virginia Slims with the the Virginia Slims brand debuts in the summer of 68. So it's been around for two years and everybody knows the ad campaign. You've come a long way, baby. And Joe Coleman says, I'll help provide some of the money for your tournament in Houston. So it becomes a Virginia Slims invitation. Um, Eight women agree to play it. And they uh, they boycott the Southwest under threat of being banned by their respective tennis associations. But that becomes kind of the bugle call for women's tennis. And here's another thing, a non-tennis factor that figures into the picture. This is 1970. Virginia Slim's ads are on television. As of January 1st, 1971, there will be no more cigarette advertising on television.
0: Right. The FCC uh, came down and said no more cigarette ads. On TV. So now if you're Virginia Slims, wait a second, got this product. I
2: want to reach young upscale women to let them know about this product. How do I do that? Oh, I got this tennis circuit. So Virginia Slims, when it sponsored maybe three kind of starting events in the fall of 70, they said, good, we'll have a circuit starting in 1971. And that becomes the Virginia Slims circuit with a total prize money of like about $309,000. And the whole Philip Morris marketing apparatus. And that becomes 1971 is kind of like the first full year of the woman's pro circuit. And it's happening. And the women are kind of taking it to the streets. They're doing clinics and doing and they're, they're up at six in the morning to go on radio. And Billie Jean King is the, is the leader. There are um eight others who join her. They're called the original nine. That's kind of an iconic, you know. It's interesting how the 60s and 70s have all these things the Magnificent Seven, the Fab Four, the Dirty Dozen, the Handsome Eights, the Fearsome Foursome. It's is, that, is that interesting? How all these terms are used for like these, these group entities? And so the women are or the original nine. Um, and they and other women, the other women start to form these tournaments. And, they're, and Gladys Hellman is kind of running the magazine and running the tour. And they're kind of like the, the rebel force, it starts to do well. And the USLTA, as it was called then, thinks, hey, wait a second. This might be a market for one sentence. Oh, let's run our circuit too. Say so start one. And so then there are rival circuits. And this exists for a couple of years, 72, 73. Eventually they make peace. And the other thing that happens, Billie Jean King starts to advocate for equal prize money. In 1972, she starts to advocate for it. The woman almost boycotted 72 U.S. Open, but then they told the tournament director Bill Talbert if you don't have equal prize money by 73, we'll boycott the U.S. Open. But the woman, Billie Jean King, and I think uh, Gladys Hellman's in the mix, they found Bristol Myers, banned deodorant, finds the money, and by 73, there's equal prize money for women at the U.S. Open
0: ahead of its time. Uh, uh, absolutely, clearly and obviously. All right, so let me back up for a second because. This guy Jack Kramer keeps coming up, and and I want to go back a little bit because he's also part of the, I guess the primordial ooze, I guess, of what we've been discussing for the last half hour, right? And this is a guy who was kind of almost the, uh, I don't know, the 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 uh, the the avatar for creating, I don't know, uh, call them tournaments, call it some kind of professional tour, maybe yeah. maybe barnstorming. Yep. Uh, but he was kind of like the the main guy that was pulling a lot of those strings prior to this period of time. Am I correct? You're absolutely right. He's like the George Washington. I mean, and he's also, tennis is such a sport that Jack Kramer, he was Michael
2: Jordan and David Stern. He was the number one player in the world starting in 1947 for several years. He, be, he turns pro at the end of 47, playing, playing Bobby Riggs, who will probably also figure into our chat. Uh, he plays, he becomes the number one pro around in 1948, and he becomes he's running the barnstorming pros and no one more than Jack Kramer was burning the candle for open tennis throughout the 40s 50s into the 60s i mean if if jack kramer's the one he's the head honcho of the barnstormers while he was playing till about 54 he kind of then he stopped playing and then he's running the tour he's signing players like tony trabert and ken Rosehall and Lou hode and yeah and he's he's the guy pound in the pavement to make open tennis happen. It doesn't quite happen until 68. And then he surfaces, he becomes the um, the ATP's first head in 1972. Yeah, he's he's right in there. He's right in there, absolutely.
0: But, uh, but I also get the sense, though, he was also, he kind of was, a, 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 I don't know, an, uh, I don't call it an irritant, but but not always aligned with, say, what we've been just talking about, where, where WCT was going, where the Virginia Slims was going, Uh, equal pay and all that kind of stuff. It almost feels to me like he was kind of a a, an obstacle in his later years when it came. I wouldn't
2: call him. I wouldn't call him an obstacle. I would call him just a business person who saw the game. I think the Lamar the Lamar Hunt part was a little complicated because he knew that he was bringing money, but here's this Texas oil guy coming to the sport. So it wasn't quite. It was that was kind of complicated and nuanced. With the woman, he said, "I just don't like losing money." And he didn't perceive that the woman could, um, could have a go of it. And so he kind of, well, go ahead, you guys, do your thing, see what you can do. I sometimes joke that the real battle of sexes isn't Billy Jean King and Bobby Riggs; it's Gladys Heldman and Jack Kramer. And he called Gladys the sm- one of the smartest people he ever met, and how smart she was, and as an entrepreneur and business and sponsors and all that. So, um. Very interesting. I don't I don't think it, it wasn't that he was uh, not a man of his time. It's just that others had come into the mix. But he was a tremendous pioneer, arguably, arguably the most influential person in the history of tennis. I mean, there's a whole lot of things The the racket, the Jack Kramer autograph racket is probably the most best selling tennis racket ever from Wilson Sporting Goods and other things. And his club and logo and clothes and all sorts of things.
0: Okay. So I want to use him as sort of as the segue into sort of the next sort of uh, big sort of event slash uh, marker, if you will, uh, in our tennis conversation. This obviously mo- more pronounced in the seventies. You mentioned just a second ago, the battle of the sexes. Actually, there were two of them. We'll get into that in a second. But I, there was a clip that I played actually a couple of weeks back when we had Michael Cambridge on the show uh, as the lead in. And it was uh, it was. Literally this wild, I mean, to, to my imagination, I don't think I remember, I wasn't conscious, I guess, when I was a kid of, of this event, but just to watch Howard Cosell and a national ABC televised audience uh, introduce this gigantic spectacle in the in the Astrodome between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs, obviously the Battle of the Sexes too. But in the beginning of that, which was hugely curious to me, and this is where sort of I, I kind of got a little bit more sense of Jack Kramer. Howard Cosell literally said, "Okay, I've just introduced all of this. This is huge. You got every celebrities here. We got forty thousand people, but we have to stop because here's this guy Jack Kramer that wants to either apologize or say he's not going to get in the way because Billie Jean King was threatening to not play the match." And I'm like, "Whoa, what is that all about?" That's where it's coming from with my sort of observation about Kramer. He was he wasn't necessarily seeing eye to eye with Billie Jean King about this event, was he? Or other or not there... about the
2: events. It was the prior, it was the prior baggage of Jack. Remember, Jack Kramer had won the Pacific Southwest Open in 1970 that Billie Jean and her eight other ah, freres didn't want to play. And in her eyes, she saw Jack as a kind of an enemy of women's tennis at the time. And so she said, she said to Rune Arledge, I won't play if Jack's in the booth. And she and she wasn't kidding. And and so there you have it. So Jack was not in the booth for that match, for that uh, match. He was a close friend of Bobby's, of Bobby Riggs. And so instead, they got Gene Scott, a a fine player and who later, who soon after started a magazine called Tennis Week. Uh, Gene, another an entrepreneur. And so, yeah, Jack. So Jack did his pre-recorded statement that said why he wasn't in the booth for the match.
0: Very interesting. Okay. Well, let's let us let us go actually to the, the the origin of this battle of the sexist thing first, because I think most people think that 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 it was that major event in September of 1973 in the Astrodome. But there was an event prior to that, earlier that year, 1973, in May. Maybe a little bit of origin story of that because I have a feeling it has very much has seeds in the Equal pay for play uh, thing that you were mentioning earlier with Billie Jean King and the Virginia. Sure, do you want
2: the, do you want the, do you want the, an even deeper origin story of that? match? Sure. Once upon a time, Bobby Riggs, born in 1918, was a, a very promising junior who lived not too far from the Los Angeles Tennis Club. And he, he got to, he was already kind of a hustler. Like his older brother would set him up with matches and they'd hustle people for money. And the Los Angeles Tennis Club had a rich environment of hustling of that kind of action of people, well, at, they, not on the, not, not just on the court, but off the court, like playing cards and playing bridge and playing these games. And so Bobby is kind of a junior member there. He he got into that when he was in his teens, and he was charming and a great player. So that's Bobby in the 1930s, the hustler. But the guy who ran the whole LA tennis club, SoCal mix, Perry Jones, was a guy who loved Jack Kramer. Jack Kramer was his prize protege um, at the LA tennis club. Bobby was kind of a bit of a, of a street scruffy guy. He Bobby came great, but Perry Jones never quite took to Bobby. Now fast forward 20 years later. There's this 11-year-old girl from Long Beach who's playing a tournament at the LA Tennis So The LA Tennis Club was the feudalistic castle of tennis in Southern California and arguably the world, given Southern California's significance in tennis then. Billie Jean Moffitt is her name. She's playing one of her first ever tournaments. She plays the tournament. And in the course of the tournament, they take a group picture of all the um they're taking a crew picture of all the girls in it and she's lining up for the picture and suddenly this guy perry jones says you you girl you can't be in the picture you're wearing shorts you need to be wearing a dress and that was billy jean king that's her defining moment so i wrote a story just recently that talked about the uh, the birth the hustler and the crusader billy jean decided that moment she says tennis is going to be different i will make tennis different so in a way the real origin of that match begins at the Los Angeles Tennis Club in the 30s with Bobby and the 50s with Billy. Now forward 15 years later, 1971, Billie Jean, it's the first full year of the Slims Tour. She's at the U.S. Open and Bobby is about 52, 53 years old. Hops his fence. He says, hey, Billy, you're the best woman. Why'd you play me? Let's have a match. She says, and she knows it's kind of like a circus thing. She, Bobby, I got to, I want to make this tour work. No, thank you. She doesn't want any part of that. So he approaches Margaret Court about a year, a little more than a year later, in like late early '73. And Margaret Court says, "Sure, okay." And she tells it to Billie Jean. And Billie Jean says, "You're doing that? Do you know what you're in for? You have no idea what you're in for." Margaret Court said, "Oh, we're just going to play a match." And Margaret Court had no idea of what a what a whole social milieu it was going to be, and and publicity and. Bobby and Bobby's hustle and, you know, Bobby Riggs, for example, I don't think he really cared about women's live one way or another. He just wanted to be relevant again. He just saw a chance at the age in his 50s. Here's how I can be relevant. Money's coming to tennis. I want in. We played Margaret Court in May 73. Match aired on CBS um, called the Mother's Day Massacre. And he beat Margaret Court. And Billie Jean King realized, all right, I guess now I have to play him.
0: What what was the immediate result from that? I, I know I think if I remember correctly, like Riggs was he got a bunch of publicity around it. Like I think it was some. Oh yeah, the, I think it was on the cover of time. Sports
2: Illustrated. Sports Illustrated comment, yeah. Don't bet against this man. I mean, it was like Bobby Riggs. It's like score one for the aging male champion. Like this guy. There you have it. You know, and 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 it's it's so funny to think of these terms that were used in the, the battle of the sexes. I mean, that's such a kind of like a is have a different era, you know, and these and these events also put on, you know, as you know, from your study the the 70s is kind of like the uh, what do you call it? The 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 morphing of wide world of sports into these spectacles like evil Knievel and the thrill in Manila and and the superstars and these these one off, these one off kind of things that some are significant and some are not. Right.
0: So uh, clearly Riggs was enjoying the attention and clearly oh. Billy Jean recognized that. Um, you know, perhaps matters had to be taken into our own hands. Can, you, you, what, what, anything off the top of your head about sort of how this, if you will, second version sort of came along? Because was this an ABC concoction? Like, oh, yeah, I, this, well, no, this is Jerry Parencio who had, who had put on huh. the um, the, uh, the the first
2: Ali-Frazier fight in '71, Madison Square Garden, and and various forces came, and it's like, okay, let's make this happen. It was ABC. I don't know why. I don't know exactly why CBS, which had done the first one, didn't want to get it on the second one. I don't know all you know. I don't know. I'm not. I don't know all those TV exec decisions. But ABC got it. My sense, also growing up and studying, ABC was always the third. Was the third network. So ABC was always looking for like you know new ways to get into the programming mix. That's why ABC started Monday Night Football because the other networks didn't want it. Pete Rozelle wanted CBS to have it, I believe. I believe he wanted the the two main NFL networks to give it a go and they didn't want it. And so AB, ABC was always like, we're up for it. We need, you know, we're, we're number three. We try really hard. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. And I think a young Rune Arledge was sort of in the, in the mix as well. And, and, and clearly after a couple of years of of money enough football, Howard Cosell was, was gaining a uh, uh, prominence for himself, Frank Gifford certainly. Uh, right. And and you saw them and, and, and a bunch of others uh, from that, uh, that Monday Night Football uh, extravaganza, uh basically twiddling the knobs and uh and directing the cameras for this event.
2: Absolutely. So the Astrodome, when you got people at you got uh, you know athletes and people in the crowd and they're all watching, and it's it's right out of the right out of that zeitgeist And It's and in a way, what ABC that was ABC in the 70s, that was its reward for the hard work it had put in. I mean, it really lagged behind in the 60s and wide world of sports and the Olympics. I mean, ABC was not. It was not quite the factor in the sports TV world that it later became, right? Monday Night Football really tipped in into the big time.
0: So can you kind of just explain, I don't know how old you were at the time. I, I barely remember it, but that's- I was 13. One. I okay. was 13. So I, I, maybe through memory and through through uh, scholarship, uh, can you just explain just how like ridiculously outsized this event was and, and what people layered on top of it in terms of its its potential meaning?
2: Well, it had all this sociology around it. I mean, again, I think if I had been 19 or 23, I probably would have seen that sociology more And in that. I just saw tennis and I liked Billie Jean King a lot. So I wanted her to win. I was 13 and in kind of like, you know, my parents were fairly liberal in their politics and they were already using terms like Miz and all that other stuff. So she was kind of the progressive avatar and he was this old chauvinist pig and yeah, it had all this sociology around it. I mean, that had nothing to do with understanding volleys or serves or ground strokes. It was just about, you know, who these each were. And this is the early seventies, and you know, Title IX had passed a year earlier, and you know, Helen Reddy and I Am Woman, and it's it's a glorious time of of social change. It was kind, of, but it was also to look back on it now. It seemed it all seems so much uh, smaller, even its bigness, because of what sports became even more. You know, kind of like. What they do? One of the things they think they had a Billy and Bobby were on The Odd
0: Couple, you know, an ABC show. Absolutely, have, I'm a huge Odd Couple fan. I remember that episode vividly.
2: They didn't have massive deals that much, but they each made some good money from it. Was a little, it's a little, it looks a little folksy, kind of, kind of fun. Yeah, and of course. Then you had the whole ABC and Rosie Casals and Gene Scott, and is it yeah, it's kind and, and of course and the Astrodome. I mean, God, you could do a whole. Uh, showed him on the Astrodome and its significance from the sixties into the seventies. How about that one on facilities, right? And the Astrodome was like the eighth wonder of the world, right? Remember that?
0: Our episode with Bob Trump door, but I digress. Yes, back uh, five years ago, but that's okay. You can look back in the library at some point here. At you your have one on uh, you can have one on Morgana the Kissing Bandit. There, well, I don't know about that. Maybe Ted Gill Gil is the, uh, the the chicken, uh, San Diego chicken. But all right, yeah. so let me let me just, let's round up this one though, because I, I guess the question in there, and obviously hindsight maybe is 2020, 20, or you can kind of sort of, uh, and obviously a movie's been done about it and all that kind of stuff and a lot of discussion and points and stuff. But I guess the question is, how quote unquote real was this? Because the way I read into this is that a lot of it was sort of playing to type almost like a, a heel based kind of a uh, uh, scenario in, in professional wrestling. Right. And Riggs almost was like kind of playing the that to the, to the hilt. The tennis uh, itself, the tennis itself, or you well, mean the, yeah, I, I guess maybe the lead up in, well, okay. Did, did was Riggs playing full? Uh, who was, who, who was hustling who? Because. Oh no, no. Riggs,
2: Riggs was playing. I mean, I know, I've, I know there've been, there've been stories um, every, every once in a while I get asked about that. And I always say to someone, you know, I never heard a woman ask me that. And I think Riggs. I think Riggs was playing, and he he under he committed the classic competitor mistake. He underestimated his opponent, and he admitted that. He he trained very hard for Margaret Court, and he was ready, and he played her. And then he Margaret Court, by the way, was the number one player in the world in 1973. So Riggs figured, well, I, I beat Margaret Court. She's better than Billie Jean, and I think Riggs is very lax on his training. And she took it seriously, and she beat him. There's no, I, I'm not. There wasn't wrestling, and like wrestling, like people like Riggs deliberately throwing points? I don't believe that.
0: No, no, I, I guess I meant he was... Okay, that, that maybe that was a bit of a stretch, but I guess what I meant that he was... There was definitely a, a bit of comedic effect, shall we say, that he was certainly playing through, at least in the beginning of the match. It, th- there are some observers that say... You know, it looked like his demeanor changed as the match progressed because he recognized that Billie Jean was taking this maybe more seriously or was better than he anticipated. Maybe especially the
2: latter. The, fact- the latter is that he realized that she was better than he anticipated and he was getting his butt kicked.
0: Okay, fair enough. Well, it's yeah, also
2: turned off. He started off trying to think. Okay, look, I beat Margaret Court. This is kind of cute. I'm the guy. I'm like the clutch player. I I got it all going. And then he saw. Wait a second. Yeah, and 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 as she was supposed to, as he was supposed to, also, you know, this wasn't there's was no there's no pre-scripted thing like wrestling. There's no show rundown.
0: No, I, okay. I didn't mean to imply that. I guess I guess that the, the uh, maybe it was more uh, an angle around the the, the uh, seriousness of the event, right? I mean, I, I think perhaps also too that uh, Billy Jean probably took this not only competitively more seriously, but just more situationally more absolutely because well look
2: he had nothing to lose absolutely she absolutely took it more seriously and she and and they both admitted that bobby knew that bobby knew Look, like bob bobby didn't care about bobby had no issue about women's rights bobby didn't you think bobby even knew who gloria Steinem was bobby didn't know that stuff bobby wasn't that concerned with like men so he was just saying stuff that he knew could be said and would get you know get copy because bobby wanted to be relevant Bobby wanted to be relevant again. And he was a great player, but I, I don't think of him as being like an ideologue about men and women.
0: No, but he certainly played the part really well for yes, a comedic effect, Right. Yeah. I, the, the one, the, the one interesting thing about that though, is that I didn't realize that, that uh, Billie Jean actually played a tournament that earlier that week. Oh, I know they had no, I think, I think the next day she
2: had to play. Yeah. I mean, she was there's a tournament in Houston and she had to play. I know that's kind of wild. That's that's where it was. She made this commitment and the tournament was in Houston. And so she played it. Yeah. All right,
0: last, last question on that. I mean, th- there have been also just uh, rumors and thoughts about uh, match throwing or, or or Riggs's gambling habits and all that kind of stuff. Any from what you remember, what you know, any truth to those scenarios or is that just kind of people just trying to throw tarnish on? That's
2: a lot of people throwing stuff. That's what I think. I think he I think he underestimated his opponent and he got uh got beaten pretty badly. And 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 didn't realize didn't realize what a pressure performer she was compared to Margaret Court. I think he just assumed that since he beat Margaret so easily, he'd have a similar easy time of it. And he got kind of caught up in his fame in the months between the May match and the September
0: match. All right. What's this? 417 Helmets. My goodness. Well, you've heard me talk about 417Helmets.com, collectible helmets and more on this uh, very show. Uh, Fairly often, our pal Judd Lesher down in uh, southwest Missouri, I think in the Springfield, Missouri area, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, What is it? 417Helmets.com. Well, first, if you dig uh, all of our great football stories and episodes of the past and you'd like to commemorate some of them in mini helmet form? Really cool, sort of literal, high-quality, professionally you know made materials, but in a mini format that you could put on your desk or uh, put on your uh, in your bookshelf or whatever it is. Uh, and just about every league that's ever existed, save from the NFL, uh, we're talking XFL, uh, old versions of uh, the WFL. Remember the World Football League? How about? various teams, both current and past in the Canadian Football League, but also NCAA teams of yore and NAIA college football teams of yore, all of them and many, many, many more available for you at 417helmets.com. But oh, that's not it. That's not it, friends. There's plenty more to be had. How about mini baseball helmets? Yeah, uh, a whole bunch in the Negro Leagues and yes, officially licensed by the Negro League Hall of Fame. You can get a bunch and they're making more uh, all the time. And by the way, custom helmets can be made too, both of the baseball and the football variety. You got your uh, your business, uh, uh, maybe a promotional thing you want to do for your company, uh, perhaps your organization. You want to raise some funds, all that kind of stuff. Great custom approaches to both mini football and mini baseball helmets can be made uh, at uh, your uh, command. Uh, for uh, uh, you to enjoy and to sell or resell or give away all of that and more. That's the more part at 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. And uh, we've got a promo code for you, too, for whatever you purchase. All of them, all of your purchases, 10% off all of those uh, when you use the promo code GOODSEATS. Again, promo code Good Seats for 10% off all of your purchases at 417 helmets. Thanks, Judd. And uh, thank you all for listening and trying them out. And now back to our conversation. Well, it, it certainly played out very well for not only Billie Jean, but but also women's tennis, because I mean, clearly she saw beyond the publicity stunt component of this and felt the importance of this victory for I think what it seems like a bunch of different initiatives to, it was oh. almost it was truly a shot in the arm for women's tennis and sports no absolutely
2: for women's tennis and and women's sports and also you know Billie Jean see I think Bobby saw this as a kind of personal publicity and kind of relevance play some matches and make some money it's like i said the hustler and the crusader each born in some degree at the Los Angeles tennis club in their youth and Billie Jean's a crusader and she's a leader and she wanted to, she saw a thing. And out of this came other opportunities for her kind of a springboard in sort things because her visibility skyrocketed following that match. She'd already had some significant accomplishments. 71, she becomes the first woman to make uh, more than $100,000 in a calendar year, woman athlete. And that and only like five baseball players made more than her. I think I was just reading in her book, she made more money than Reggie Jackson in 1971. So he was kind of impressed by it. Seventy-two, she beca- She and John Wooden are named like sportspersons of the year on, on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And I and I think you and I can we can't understate the significance of being on the cover of Sports Illustrated in those years. What that means. So seventy-two, and then the match. The match is kind of like the capper. Right now, it's crossover fame. Ninety million people watching around the world. Thirty thousand. A little over thirty thousand watching the AstroDome that night. Yeah, real a real springboard.
0: Well, clearly, Billie Jean King has uh, a lot of capital now, right? Uh, in the sport, uh, coming out of this, uh, her uh, presence and her persona were, you know, certainly uh, off the charts. World, uh, world headlines and that all that kind of stuff. Um, so let's talk about this third sort of ma- major pillar uh, of tennis in the 70s, and to me is probably one of the more fascinating, certainly polychromatic uh, <laughs> examples of it, uh, is this idea of world team tennis. Now, I- I'm looking back at sort of the the timelines of this, right? So uh, this wasn't sort of necessarily a linear development. My guess is that based on the timing of when world team tennis was founded, um, the Battle of the Sexes was actually happening around the time where this founding was already underway. Do I have that correct?
2: Sure, correct. The the league has its draft in the summer of 73, I believe in August. So it's already the, the, yeah, kind of the, the admin work is in place for World Team Tennis sometime in 73, maybe 72, but certainly in 73. And then the win over Riggs gives it kind of, gives it in its own way, a certain kind of headwind of publicity. The success of the women's pro circuit is helping fuel the credibility of women's tennis. So therefore, the the relevance of a co-ed league surfaces. So the the factors are in place, and, and also, and I think you've talked about this in other shows about kind of how would I put it the uh, the need to these these arenas, these arenas looking to fill and put butts in, put butts in the seats, right? all over the country
0: especially in the summertime or the spring when uh, when all the other uh, when the winter sports are essentially done or waning
2: yeah it's so funny to think now since we have basically 13 months a year of sports now in the country in those days there were certain kind of off seasons it appeared these these gaps of oh my god we're we're starved for sports content we only have one sport going on what are we going to do right
0: well, we had uh, obviously we had uh, uh, two great conversations uh, and would have d- loved to have done more with uh, with Dennis Murphy. So maybe uh, you can explain maybe his role in all this. But but just to quickly go back, it does seem, and this is sort of a new revelation to me at least, uh, that this feels to me like a branch out or a break off of this uh, budding, uh, maybe nibbled at team concept that the NTL kind of had uh, as part of its uh, uh mechanics back in you know 7172
2: no, but the the NTL the NTL was gone by 7172 it had been part of WCT, and it wasn't a league like they played on teams it was just a league of it was just called that as a traveling group there were okay, there, wasn't so no or, or, uh, no.
0: there was there's no director or no
2: there's just okay. a little notion of a league maybe that tricked something there are other things in Billie Jean's mind i think it was her desire for tennis to be uh, more like a treated like the way teams were. So remember, this is a woman whose brother was a Major League Baseball pitcher, Randy Moffat.
0: Sure. Or co ed, the co edness of it, right?
2: Right. the co- Well, of course, she wanted a co edness. So, because that's that's the neat thing. Because prior to 68 and the, and the break and the building of each tour, men and women played a great many events together, not just the majors, but all the other events. They were often in the same place. And Billie Jean liked doubles and she liked mixed doubles. And so, World Team Tennis. Pretty amazing. I mean, 44 matches May through August, um, players skipping, not playing the Roland Garros French Open to play World Team Tennis, good contracts, uh, five, six, 10,000 people watching these matches all over the place. Incredible. For about five years, those first five years were amazing.
0: And the idea was what? Team play versus a singles kind of, uh, or a a total kind of, yeah. Team play, build affinity with
2: a team. So I grew up in Los Angeles then, and the Los Angeles strings, we got 44 matches, 22 on the road, 22 at home. So you build an affinity with a team, the same way you did with the Dodgers and the Lakers. And so you would get to see this team that was part of the community. And and then they're playing. And here comes a team from... uh, from the the Phoenix team is playing, and so they have this team, and they're um, they're playing all five di- all the disciplines, men, single, doubles, mix, the whole hootenanny, and it moves pretty quick. It was fun. I went to a lot of team tennis in those years.
0: Describe to me what the atmosphere was like, what the court looked like, the the play, and uh, clearly the crowd was encouraged to participate.
2: The the yeah, they were encouraged to participate, kind of bring some of the Monday night football. Thing I have a friend, this friend of mine, uh, Mark Topaz. He would go to Boston Lobsters matches with banners, just like they used to do at Monday Night Football. You know, banners aimed at directed at players and and things. Um, I f- I forget when the multicolored court came in, but maybe it was the second year, maybe not the first. So a yeah, multicolored court, which again was TV friendly, and the the seventies was such a decade for color in sports, right? Really. Everything started to blossom. Things that had started in the the mass culture in the '60s came to the, the masses even more in the '70s. And the matches moved pretty quickly. I mean, they play no ad scoring, so there are no deuces, um, it, it, and you're encouraged to kind of yell and and whoop it up. And the, and the players were enjoying it. It it was fun.
0: Yeah, and there were uh, it was also part of uh, a fledgling HBO Sports uh, back in yeah. the day. Uh with yeah. Martin Glickman, a uh, fr- former Uh, topic uh, uh, of this here little show that was the uh, original sports director of. Um, But the success, though, not only of that format and making it more fan and crowd friendly and TV friendly, um, it also seems like it attracted uh, a a pretty strong stable of top players, frankly, who might have wanted a little sort of a a different uh, experience out there playing. Having that,
2: maybe the woman part was really important because the woman knew the women were not treated that well at the spring European events. So world team tennis knew that they could make an appeal to women. Says, Yo, "You you want to go to Rome to play for this kind of money? Instead, we're going to give you a contract for a guaranteed amount of money for this amount. Whether you're a top player like Chris Everett or a or a player a little lower ranked like a player like named Rainy Fox who played for the Pittsburgh Triangles, and and here's a contract." and you're going to be in the U S you know, the women weren't treated that well at the European events with money, um, the tournament, the way the tournament accommodations, all sorts of things. So that was kind of a window that they climbed into and that created some rancor. For example, um, as a result of that in 1974, Jimmy Connors and Yvonne Goolagong, who were playing world team tennis were, were banned from playing the French open and they each won the Australian. So they each had no, they weren't able to continue pursuing a, a calendar year grand slam and they weren't allowed to play the french so there was this schism between the tournaments and the world team tennis but a lot of players and and, and here's the thing about world team tennis having a high quality woman is very important see scoring system worked you kept track of your games one and men hold serve at a higher rate than women. so because of that a man might win a match elena stasi might be tom Acker, seven five but it's not going to do that much for his team other than give them a two-game lead. Chris Everett is going to demolish, I won't mention a name, which she's going to demolish a lower-ranked woman six-one. So now we got a plus five. So having a good woman was very helpful in world team tennis. And yeah. that mixed was important, so that was a very important thing to have.
0: Yeah, and she obviously was, obviously, because of her husband uh, on the business side at the time. Uh, you know, she was obviously the premier. She was the face, really, of that league. Well,
2: but she she was involved in the business side, too. You know, Billie Jean was involved and she was talking it up and promoting it. And she was the, oh, yeah, she was the, she and Larry were the co founders. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and some of, the, as you probably know, some people who later become significant uh, sports owners, that's where that was kind of their, their training wheels uh bob Kraft with the boston lobsters jerry buss with the los angeles strings and the indiana team and the san diego team that's where those guys
0: cut their teeth owning sports franchises and i have been promised that at some point we'll get to talk to Jeannie buss who kind of got her uh her her sea legs uh working for dad yeah,
2: Bus, a great that's a great story yeah and i um yeah she went to uh, the the rival high school of mine i remember Jeannie buss and she was Already starting to run a, a tennis team in her teens, and while she was at, going to USC, amazing.
0: Yeah, and and obviously uh, a, a multi-faceted um, executive, but also uh, a, a, a more more than one occasion working with uh, the late great Dennis Murphy. But I can't I can't go further though in this this observation and this reminiscence without bringing up Dennis Murphy because it wouldn't be a league uh, <laughs> of Dennis Murphys without teams. Folding and moving, and some people getting held with the with the uh, holding the bag on the franchise rights that weren't were really worth anything. Or so, describe to me these three, four, five seasons. Uh, I know it started off with, um, I guess it was sixteen teams, and it sort of whittled down to about ten for the rest of its of its life in the seventies. But d- describe to me, perhaps, why how it sort of um uh went and or wound down and maybe why perhaps I know it came back in some various fits and starts and stuff and still exists today in a much more smaller kind of oh it hasn't, they haven't record. had
2: seasons they haven't had seasons the last couple of seasons you're right and it became those first five years were very Lively lots of excitement um different cities teams doing things TV coverage colorful uniforms a lot of top players Um one little factor, um, some of the older Aussies, such as Roy Emerson and Fred Stolly who were still playing some darn good tennis, were serving as player coaches, and they brought in a certain spirit of kind of hard work and fun. I mean, the that that kind of they they sort of were like the the um the dorm advisors to these younger players playing in it and they they helped the players get better. Martina credits her work with Roy Emerson and the Boston Lobsters as helping her win her first Wimbledon. And they brought in a certain spirit, like the Aussies are very sturdy. They're kind of like the, uh, the gas house gang baseball players. It's like, okay, we play today, live for tomorrow. Let's enjoy ourselves tonight. And that brought a certain kind of joie de vie to the league. Stolle, Emerson, Tony Roach, later Rod, Rod Laver played world team tennis. Um, that John Newcomb, that brought some nice, nice spirit of energy to it. And it was exciting. It was kind of in the tennis boom time, um, those five years, 74 through 78, those were kind of the, the prime years of world team tennis. And then things happened, the um, the, the Colgate Grand Prix, which became part of the, the women's circuit, starts to offer more money for women to play events. So that kind of um, upped the significance of the spring European circuit and other times of the year. Again, it's just a, a lot of geopolitics and land masses and tectonic plates going on in those years. And so... I think eventually World Team Tennis, it couldn't afford to sustain itself. The players are getting a chance to make more money elsewhere.
0: Do you think that if it had been, I don't know, maybe a decade later, I know what if is a dangerous game, but the fact that with a a budding cable television ecosystem and more opportunities and channels to fill with sports programming and stuff, um, or some other economic issues, or what? I don't know. It, I guess the question is: I to me, it looks like it was a hell of a lot of fun, very innovative, certainly ahead of its time, and just entertaining uh, f- from all get out. And I'm just surprised that it it really hasn't come back in any great with any great verve since.
2: Well, tennis has this. The, the trick I think in tennis is while well, World Team Tennis wanted to sell the team. The sell was still the stars. And the tournament structure so dominated the sport that people were then drawn to the stars anyway. And that made a hard business model. So if you're asking, so if World Team Tennis comes along in 1981, in the early ESPN years, and it's part of that, God, that's a that's a whole thing to think about. That's like asking if, uh, I don't know, that's like asking if, if Sonny Worblin had had been working in the eighties? I don't know. I don't know what to, well, I,
0: I, I, you know, I, I, maybe I I answered my own question. I mean, the major indoor soccer league, I think perhaps kind of filled that gap in the eighties and kind of was, a. I mean, that certainly had some sea legs for about even a little bit longer for most of that decade, but really certainly benefited by the fact that, you know, the USA cable network and then ESPN and stuff, they needed, you know, this. they needed to fill time. Well, the other thing that happened
2: in the seventies, and I think this is this I give a lot of credit to Billie Jean King and Gladys Hellman and Lamar Hunt for doing it, by upping the significance of the tours, they forced all the Grand Slam events, starting with the U.S. Open, to up their game. It's like, you guys can't just be shaggy-toothed old-school clubs. You can't just, it's not going to work. The game is growing. They did the work that built the engagement, the Spectre engagement, that signaled the U.S. Open's popularity that we can't be played at the West Side Tennis Club anymore. And all the other SLAM facilities all up their game considerably in the, in the, as the US opened in, in the 70s into the 80s and 90s. So they kind of were the groundswell movement that helped the, the four majors reassert themselves in a major way to become those tentpole events that they are now. So that'd be, but in a way, then they had to kind of take the hit for having done that. That's kind of the, what happened. Do you oh, think?
0: Do you think we could ever see a team-based format uh, of some significance that that the original WTT did in the in the seventies make? It I come would love to see,
2: I would love to see college tennis adapt a world team tennis format. I think. I don't know if you've ever been to a college tennis match. It's it's fun in its way, but you can have as many as six matches going on at once, and the matches take a long time, and that is not a exceptionally TV friendly format. But I think if let's say the um, the Stanford UCLA match was a world team tennis format, you know, on one court over the course of two or three hours. And you had both of their campuses. I think that'd be a great way for uh, the team format to take effect in in college tennis. I think college tennis is perfect for, I also think, I also think the Olympics, I was very, I've never, I haven't explored this well enough. Tennis comes back into the Olympics as a test sport in 84. and and full time in '88, it's just done as a series of elimination tournaments. That's a perfect team tennis event format. Is the Olympics? Call it call it the King Cup. There's now a BJK Cup, which used to be called the Fed Cup. That's the a women's team event. But I think the Olympics would lend itself perfectly to the world team tennis format.
0: No, I you know I think you're right. I think it's a really good idea because in essence, it's just it's just another tennis tournament, so to speak. Hey, right? Look. Right.
2: What if the Olympic gold medal had come down once to um, Serena and Andy Roddick playing Roger Federer and Martina Hingis for the Olympic gold, U.S. versus Switzerland for the gold medal finals, and make the Olympics a team event because we like team events at the Olympics and have it that way. Because otherwise, right now, it's an event. It's The Olympics in tennis, it's, it's accomplished a lot for tennis, particularly on the developing tennis and other countries front. But as far as events itself, while the players are very passionate when they win it, they don't mind too much that they don't. No one will look back at Roger Federer's resume and said, oh, he never won the singles at the Olympics. It's no problem. It's all OK. doesn't mean anything.
0: Yeah, you know, I also look at and I want to sort of round this up with your, your thoughts about where tennis is now and, and maybe the effects of, of the 70s in a second. But um, it also seems like th- this is sort of an era now where um, finally, at long last, I mean, you've got women uh, getting not only their sort of fair share, fair pay, fair Treatment, if you will, in the in the pro sports pantheon, but perhaps even in some cases, even eclipsing the male side. I I, I look back, though, in all of that and and so many years later, um, you know, World Team Tennis and I guess maybe the International Volleyball Association, right? Two scenarios in the 70s where co-ed team based play uh, was the uh, was the product. And I just to me, it just feels almost ripe. For and maybe it's not those two sports, but but for, for some kind of equal team-based multi, uh, you know, a combo gender kind of uh, 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 competition or sport or league or something like that. It just feels like it's uh, it's almost uh, exquisite timing to maybe revisit that.
2: I agree with certain
0: things in tennis. There
2: are several team events float around in the men's game. There are talk about some with the women's game. I think some of these gender uh, these these team activities in tennis could be done as a mixed gender and it'd be a lot more fun for all concerned. I agree. There's one now that's called the Hopman Cup that's resurrected and played. And this year's played in France after many years in Australia. And that has some fun to it. Yeah, I think those could be good. The thing is, though, in tennis, the four majors really reassert themselves and the circuit, the the, the spectator equity in tennis comes from watching individuals win big tournaments. World Team Tennis will not ever displace those four majors.
0: I guess so. But, you know, in terms of, you know, colorful garb like the Golden Gators or the the New York Apples might have worn back in the day or the vaunted New Orleans Sunbelt Nets, you know, there's so many great names. and Oh, yeah.
2: Well, also, there's a whole... Have you done a show on like fashion, sports fashion and color of the 70s? You know, like that WFL ball or... Or, you know, remember was it it the orange baseball attempt and these different Charlie
0: Finley was behind that? Yeah. All these different things that we're
2: looking to get at at fashion and color. You know, you go back a little to the 60s with the with Joe Willie and the white shoes. And I know that all fashion things. I I think it was Charlie Finley. Can you believe he he was able to pay players three hundred dollars to grow a mustache? Three hundred
0: dollars. Try that today. Three hundred dollars. Whatever it takes, master showman. All right. Well, let me ask you. Let me wrap this up then. Let me get let me get your opinion on what you think sort of came out of this decade plus in terms of changes. Uh, maybe what didn't change. And frankly, I love love your take on where you see the sport now, uh, especially in the midst of. I don't want to necessarily call it a bubble, but private equity and there's a lot of a lot of money being flowing in. Into into sports now and and arguably inflating valuations and maybe you know too many sports and too many leagues and four pickleball thises and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't know. I, I wonder where that all goes. Uh, well, before we
2: get term. to that, let me let me get to the impact of the seventies and one person we haven't talked about. Who? Uh, well, I mentioned him briefly. Um, if Billie Jean is the avatar of what women's tennis and maybe all tennis is for the seventies, the other person who's who I need to talk about is Jimmy Connors. And I'm not just saying that because I wrote a book about him, but also he was the first tennis rock star. Everything tennis wants to be now has its roots in what Jimmy Connors started, the interaction with the crowd, the fist pumping, the energy, all the ways he connected. He was the Elvis. He was the breakthrough. And that happens in the 70s. And at first it seemed like he was the barbarian at the gate. And eventually, of course, he became the beloved elder icon Um through the 70s into the 80s, even into the 90s when he had that kind of requiem run at the 91 US Open to reach the semis. And the legacy of the 70s in tennis was the tennis has its right as a legitimate sport. Don't you dare think it's simply a garden party because guys like Connors and in her way, Billie Jean King, they turned it electric. They turned it from this acoustic lawn party into kind of the electric carnival. And the color... And the rackets are changing the materials. the The people are seeing, wow, this is a real sport. This is not just some little thing played by the by the rich behind these little you know club lawns. This is like for real, and it's vivid, and it's technicolor, and it's on TV a lot, and it takes a lot. You know, uh, John Lucas, all American in tennis and basketball, NBA basketball player, he said, "Oh, tennis is harder than basketball. You can't sh- you can't pass up the ball." You got to take every shot. You got to play every minute of the game. He goes, but then basketball might make you a better person because you have to learn to work with people. So I think the '70s turned tennis into a major player on the sporting scene.
0: Yeah, I, I get it, and uh, both uh, professionally and on television, but also culturally uh, for people emulating and it's certainly some of the some of those big classic matches in the '80s, you know, the, 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 in the majors and all that kind of stuff. I it, it certainly brought things to. I mean the fact that, like for example, CBS would would show the final of the U.S. Open right as on the window of an NFL football Sunday, right? I mean I, that was like required viewing, right? You couldn't miss it. it. Was event it was event viewing? Prior to
2: 1979, the Wimbledon finals were shown on NBC on tape delay. 1979, we see Breakfast at Wimbledon, which becomes like a must-view thing. So it's like tennis is right in there, worthy of you know, cultural and athletic significance. And it inspires other people, inspires people to want their kids to play and people to watch it. it. It has a, it becomes cool in a way it hadn't been before.
0: So fast forward to today, uh, you're active in the sport. You, you, you're on air, you're in, you're, you're writing stuff about it and stuff. W- where is tennis now? And, uh, is it in a good place? Is it in a, not so good place. Do you see some threats, some challenges, some some green pastures? What, what do you see for the sport?
2: It's in an interesting period where we're, we are no, we've been nearing the twilight. You know, uh, Serena Williams pretty much, you know, she didn't officially call it retiring, but she's not playing. She just had a second child. We, we finished this, not finished. We've had this great, incredible 20 years through the 21st century of Venus and Serena Williams, an incredible story themselves. Roger Federer, uh, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal. Three great players. Um, so and now we're seeing, well, what's more to come? I think we're in a period of um more globalization. More players are going to come from more countries that haven't previously been part of the tennis. And that's partially due to the Olympics generating credibility for tennis in a great many countries. Because when it became that that was very significant in tennis growing in Russia, once it became an Olympic sport in China. And and look, and there's there's been talk, I've talked with some people who think, hey, there could be an interesting market in Africa. What about tennis in Africa? A lot of people there. So I think the globalization of tennis is the big kind of the mega trend of tennis. That's the big part. The more countries and the world is flat, so it's smaller and, and more people are exposed to the game. I mean, people can grow up in all parts of the world and watch tennis now and watch tennis on TV and see matches on YouTube and all sorts of things.
0: Do you see any threat or change to the the current tour system? I mean, do you think there's any reinvention there that could be had? Uh, but we mentioned team-based play possibly uh, as a as a wrinkle, but uh, or is it is it is it big money and and big tournaments and it's everything. Not
2: team-based play, but what we have seen and this has been going on to a small degree over the last I don't know, 15, 20 years. It's funny through the 70s and 80s, each gender built its own tour. The men with their WCT in the Grand Prix, the women with Virginia slams. And then what began to happen is that term directors like Butch Buchholz in Miami, Charlie Passerelle in Indian Wells, Ian Tiriak in Madrid. Hey, wait a second. The sell of a dual gender tournament, just like the slams, is a great thing. So we're seeing we're seeing more recoalescing of dual gender events. This has been happening for years, but making them even more Making it more formalized. There's an event in Cincinnati that only became dual gender maybe 10, 15 years ago, and, and they would kind of stagger the weeks. But now they're saying, okay, how is this really going to look? And so I think what we're going to see schedule wise, there might be some weeding out of some lower tier tournaments. And I'm not sure how it's going to take place because there's only so many weeks in the calendar. But some of these dual gender events that all like to think that would like to think of themselves as like the fifth slam you know, the near slam level events are going to become yet more significant. So that's one form. And then there's, there's, ta- there's talk, and I don't know how it's going to happen of maybe is there some more ways of guaranteeing compensation for players lower ranked. I don't know how that happens. And I kind of await that. So I think we're going to see some more scheduling things format wise. I, I don't think so. I don't think, I, I don't think there's going to be like a, a new form of team play. I think there's going to be just maybe some more streamlining of the calendar of the significance of events, more of a, of a, of a vivid triage of tournaments. Yeah. That's why I'd call it a vivid triage. Here are your majors. Here's your next tier of what the men, the, the thousand level events and so on.
0: All right. And it, my last question for you is what of the Davis cup, it's probably the closest thing to team play we've got. That seems to be, have kind of gone sideways over the last decade or so. No.
2: After Davis Cup, there was always an awareness in the last 30 years that Davis Cup was becoming cumbersome for players to commit to. And they would do it at certain times, and they would They didn't have – there wasn't as much of a sustained engagement with Davis Cup from top players. So players, yeah, okay, this is the year I'm going to do some Davis Cup. either three out of five, and they're traveling. So there's a quest to create more of a World Cup format for Davis Cup. And then that happens in 2019, but it was so – streamlined that and even the matches becoming two out of three sets that became kind of confusing you know these round robins and they're playing to semis and the finals are going to happen in a couple weeks i'm not sure what's yet to come now with davis cup i'm a little uncertain as how it happened and there are a lot of reasons for that because the, the players weren't participating to the extent that they had in prior years so it needed to be fixed but it's not quite clear the fix in that, and unfortunately, the first year of the new format, I believe, was 2019, and then came the pandemic, so that kind of also hindered Davis Cup. So I'm not sure how Davis Cup wants to kind of like reclaim its its status. Now, once upon a time, if you didn't play Davis Cup, your association could ban you from playing other tournaments, and so that that the players in 1973 fought to, for their own freedom. But now that's not the case so I think Davis Cup needs to kind of figure itself out a little bit more
0: all right tell our audience where they can find you follow you see you read you hear and listen to you uh, or see you, wherever you know what do I you write
2: do? most for, I write most for tennis.com which is part of tennis Channel that's where my stories are most frequently I also write stories I have I write for a, a racket magazine they I have stories there that are posted um online a great many of those have been about of things that occurred in the 70s and things we we're talking about. Um, but also I write a lot of that stuff for for tennis.com. I mean, I um written all sorts of pieces this year about Billie Jean King, which has been really fun. Um, uh those are the two, those are the two major places. I mean, you could also just Google my name and find other stuff. I wrote a book called Jimmy Connors Save My Life. It's a very rewarding project. Um so those are those are the major ones. Oh, I have a podcast. I'm sorry, a podcast called Three. And me and two colleagues of mine, Gil Gross and Amy Lundy, we called it originally Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. And now obviously we're talking a lot about Djokovic, sometimes Nadal, depending on his participation, but it's more of a, I like to think of it more about views than news. I mean, we're not just doing, we're trying to take a big picture view. We did a show once talking about what you can learn from the forehands of each, how each used his forehand and and how they did it differently and what that means so that's
0: a fun show too excellent any social media things or or not
2: i uh i kind of went uh i kind of decided to um leave those i'm not on twitter um no i don't i'm not doing that now
0: no i don't blame you everyone has their approach I'm trying to help you promote that's all of course. Ah, cool and then any other projects coming up like any other books or ideas or or
2: a lot a lot of ideas uh, we'll see what's to come you know this year i've had a lot of fun uh the wta turned 50 this year And so Tennis Channel, we came up with um, 12 concepts celebrating the history of the WTA and its 50 years, from its origins to rivalries to um, crossover icons. I just wrote a story about how how a lot of women's tennis players have appeared in advertising and what that all means and why advertisers are drawn to tennis. So that's a 12-part series that has both a TV component that's hosted by the former pro Leslie Allen that I'm involved in also and a written component that's on the internet. So that's been a really fun 12 part series that tennis channel has been, has kind of honcho this year. I've really enjoyed that.
0: You Do you know if um, uh, they're ever going to rerun some of those old uh, world team tennis matches? I know they did a few years ago. That was the old HBO. Uh, event. Dad,
2: most of them are now on YouTube. I watch them occasionally. Like a friend and I will watch some of them and just kind of talk about them. Um, I don't know if they're going to air on Tennis Channel. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure they did. Tennis Channel a number of years ago re-aired a show that um, the Pepsi Grand Slam, it was this four-man tournament play during the 70s with Borg and Connors and McEnroe and Vitas Gerolitis and some others. And I was really I really enjoyed working on it because I got to write this kind of two-minute intro for it that had video and Kevin Frazier announced it and, and it had these, it, it kind of did this whole package re-airing. But that might have been about 15 years ago. And that's some of
0: this on YouTube. still. that was really fun. Well, Ken, Ken Solomon's a, a TV guy the, through and through. So yeah. I, I, it just feels to me like there's a, there's, um, and again, obviously it's rights and all that kind of stuff, but I mean, uh, he loves, I,
2: tennis. He loves tennis and he loves the history of the game. I mean, he yeah. worked on the Barnstorms. They did the great documentary on Federer Nadal and the, the documentary on Vitas Gerolitis and Rod Laver and Martino. Where, where's
0: the world? Okay. Where's the world team tennis documentary? Just asking.
2: We'll see. We'll see what's to come.
0: Okay, that was major interestingness right there and uh, hopefully some more subtopics and more deeper investigations uh, into various components of said conversation with Joel uh, whom we thank for for being with us this week. Uh, If you know of people who were involved in World Team Tennis or were at or part of the uh, creation of the Battle of the Sexes um, uh, spectacle at at the Astrodome, maybe you were part of or know of people who were involved in the uh, founding of the Virginia Slims tournament or the world championship tennis thing that we'd love to know about him. Just send us an email at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Hey, maybe you even have a connection to Billie Jean King who have been somewhat uh, uh, feverishly trying to uh, uh, get connected to Lord knows she's got a bunch of stuff to promote. She's got her, her all in autobiography that's out there, which is a wonderful read by the way. Um, and she's also involved in, in starting up a couple of leagues. This is The League One Volleyball effort, um, which she is part of, as well as um, a bunch of other uh, uh, leagues that are sort of, uh, you know, finally sprouting for, for women's sports. Uh, we'd love to talk to her and anybody else, for that matter, involved in, say, World Team Tennis or, or the like. Um, okay, so while you're online, why don't you uh, check out our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up this episode number 325 with Joel Drucker and you'll find some convenient links to his writings uh, as well as his book, which I believe is out of print, but uh, quite available. Uh, and it's called Jimmy Connors Saved My Life. We we'll, Let's see if we can figure out a way to get it republished, shall we? Uh, but until then, you'll find that book link conveniently. And when you buy it uh, or consider buying it through that link, on GoodSeatStillAvailable.com, you will um, give us a few shekels of referral love if you make that purchase, and we appreciate that very much. Uh, If you'd like to read uh, more of Joel's uh, thoughts about the game of tennis, you can go to uh, various places. Tennis.com, which is an offshoot of the Tennis Channel, uh, which you may watch on TV uh, and maybe see him on occasion. Uh, You'll see his writings there at tennis.com. You can also find uh, other writings of Joel's at Racket Magazine's website. It's racketmag.com, R-A-C-Q-U-E-T-M-A-G.com, racketmag.com. You can also listen to Joel's podcast. It's called Three, and um, ostensibly was uh, founded as a uh, a conversation around uh, Messrs. Federer and Nadal and Jokovic, uh, but um, uh, it's uh, it's evolved into something more of a, a viewpoints on various things going on in the realm of tennis. It's called Three, and I'm sure you can get that wherever podcasts, good podcasts may be found in your various podcast catchers and feeders and all that kind of stuff. And if you have, for whatever reasons, not subscribed or followed us in your favorite podcast, manner by which you get podcasts, by all means, make that click to do so. Uh, We're available wherever you can find podcasts. All of our old episodes are available on YouTube, uh, as well as on our website at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Follow us on social, why don't you? We're at, uh, let's see, on X slash Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, On Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. And on Facebook uh, and Instagram and Threads. You will find us at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. I think I kind of got all those correct. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. Whatever. You'll find us. Just search us up there. Uh, Also, Jerry Payne, thank you, kind sir, for your your efforts, as always, this week. Jerry Payne, audio excellence. uh, Thank you, kind sir. And, of course, to you, the uh, great listeners out there, we appreciate it uh, to no end. Thank you for your support, and uh, we appreciate your listenership. As always, until next week, take care of yourselves and we will see you then. Bye bye.